Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. So hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Sarah Walker. Sarah's Professor of Energy at Newcastle University. She's had almost three decades in the energy sector with a career spanning industry and academia. And her research focuses on renewable energy, energy efficiency, energy policy and resilience, and whole energy systems. So obviously very topical at the moment. And at Newcastle University, Sarah was previously the director of the Center of Energy, collaborating with academic staff and research staff and leading research activities on clean and affordable low carbon energy. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I think it would be really interesting to just kick off with, especially for those people outside of the world of science and academia. What are you working on at the moment and what's your week and your intray filled with? Yeah, so that's a good question. This morning, I was talking to a company that does marketing and branding, and they were helping us identify ways in which we could develop a new brand for a research center that we're setting up. So we've got some money to do some research around energy demand. A lot of the research policy is around energy supply. Where does the supply come from? and not as much around energy demand. How can we change the way that we use energy? So we've got this new research centre that we set up beginning of July, and we'd really like a nice website so that we can tell people exactly what our findings are and what we're recommending. And to do that, we really want a new brand in order to get the name out there and get it well known so that people will hear about us, hopefully and find out more about the actual research. So that's a bit unusual because it's the start of a project, but where we're doing some marketing and branding work with an external company. And then another thing that I've been doing today is looking at some research that we've been doing on a project around geothermal energy and reviewing a document that one of the researchers has sent to me. So that's a pretty typical day and pretty typical of my week, actually. So you work in an area that affects us all, but a lot of your work goes unseen by the general population. So this transition to green energy, to renewables, how did you start in this particular career journey? Yeah, so I started off at A level, really interested in physics, but I didn't know what kind of job physics could get me. I just really enjoyed doing physics and I went off to university and did a physics degree. And at the end of that, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, but was still very enthusiastic about physics as a topic area and went and trained as a teacher and taught physics for a while. But while I was doing that, I was doing lots of voluntary work for my local Friends of the Earth branch and really got into the topic of energy and decided that was an area that I really wanted to make my career direction um, rather than just a hobby and an evening activity. So I went back to university and did a master's 
degree in environmental science and that enabled me to get my first research job looking at wind energy. So it was really my voluntary work that got me most interested in renewable energy technologies and ways in which we could try and improve the environment in which we live and work. And how do you see the theory and research work that you do actually transition to real changes so either things being built or taken down or new new techniques actually being put into implementation so a lot of that is through the stakeholders that we work with as part of the research that we're doing so for example i'm working at the moment with south tyneside council and they have just installed a heat network in part of the region that the council is responsible for And the heat network connects some social housing with some council buildings and it runs off an air source heat pump. And so I've been working with them to help identify how well designed is the system, how much carbon will it save, how much energy demand reduction should they see. So working in partnership is really where we see the best opportunities for the research to make a difference. And as well as that, you're doing or have done recently a lot of work in and around hydrogen as part of the energy transition. What are you doing or have been doing in that area? So we're interested from a research point of view in how we get to net zero by 2050. And at the moment, government seems to think that somewhere between 10 and 20% of our overall energy mix might come from hydrogen in the future. So we're trying to understand What does that mean in terms of the scale of change that's needed in our current energy system if the energy system in 2050 has got a significant amount of hydrogen in it? Where does that hydrogen come from? Where does that hydrogen get used? And where does that hydrogen get stored and transported to the end user? So we're really interested in energy systems and how all the different components interact with one another. And that will change over time as the energy mix changes, including changing because of potentially more use of hydrogen in the overall mix. And how does it work in reality, the interrelationship between academics and researchers, between the government and between the big corporate world and the power companies? So if you take something like hydrogen and there is a target to have 10 to 20% of our power from hydrogen by 2050 who is actually saying that it should be 10 to 20 percent is it the government or is it colleagues like yourself recommending that that can be achieved how does the interplay work so the target is 10 to 20 percent of our energy mix rather than our power but in terms of where that target comes from it's a combination of things really so it's in a government document but part of that is What does industry think is realistic? It's also partly what is industry lobbying to get financial support for from government. And so as a researcher, what we want to try and do is help provide the evidence. Is 10 to 20% realistic? And if so, how do we get there? Because we're starting from a really tiny amount of hydrogen in the overall mix. And in fact, it isn't really used for energy. It's used for chemical feedstocks in the chemicals industry. And so we're not really using hydrogen very much at all for our energy needs currently. We're starting from pretty much zero. So we're trying to help with that evidence gathering, 
and doing some modeling of the energy system to try and understand what it means if we were to put hydrogen down existing gas network infrastructure, for example, or if we were to store lots of hydrogen underground in salt caverns, then where are they? And are they close to potential end users of hydrogen like the steel sector or ceramics? So big industry demand centers. And as an academic and a researcher in this area, do you have to ever deal with conflict or suffer from pressure from outside organizations? Because you work in such an important area and there are so many interested parties from pressure and lobby groups like Just Stop Oil. You mentioned your earlier involvement with Friends of the Earth. You've got the very interested parties of various utilities and energy companies. You've got governments trying to seek re-election. How easy is it to maintain academic rigor and independence in the middle of all of that pressure? Yeah, so really interesting question, Mark, because at the end of the day, as researchers, we probably need to recognize that we come to research with some bias of our own. And so to that extent, it would be unfair to say that the research is completely unbiased. There is a lot of discussion in the energy field currently around electrify everything or hydrogen's great for everything. And it's very black and white in some of the conversations. And what we are trying to understand is where could hydrogen or electrification bring most value long term? So we're not saying it's an either or, it probably needs to be a bit of everything because the decarbonisation challenge is so massive. We're trying to understand which solution is offering most value to the entire system. And to do that, we need to have quite big vision. You know, we need to look at the very big picture and really zoom out quite a lot to be able to understand if hydrogen is going to be really good, let's say for marine transportation, then that potentially frees up electricity demand for electrification of road transportation, for example. So it's about trying to understand some of these trade-offs. So it's both the sort of digital engineering solutions, but also the macroeconomic and societal mix of how this is all going to be brought about. And you're looking at all of that. Yeah, and with the energy demand project that I mentioned before, we've got economists, for example, who are helping us understand, should some of the energy efficiency measures, for example, be paid for out general taxation, or should they be paid for by the individual, or should they be paid for through energy bills? And so trying to understand different ways in which the macroeconomics might work? What does the business plan look like? How can that business plan be sustainable? Those are also really important questions because we want to be able to improve the energy mix from a carbon point of view, but we also need to make sure that that still is providing economic sustainability. And so, although this will date our conversation, in the news this week, there is commentary about the current Rishi Sunak's government potentially rolling back on some green commitments. How, in reality, do the government changes of position 
roll through to impact your work? So some of that is very short term and it doesn't necessarily feed in to the research because we just can't respond quickly enough to things like concern about low traffic neighborhoods, which is actually not a green measure. It's a health measure. It's all about air pollution and asthma. And weirdly, it's not a green measure, but it's being described like that in the media. But obviously, there's been some rollback on things like oil and gas exploration licenses as well, which is quite a big decision to make. But what we try and do with the research that we've got is save a little bit of money and time and put it aside to enable us to be a bit more responsive. So we have research projects that are five years long and have quite clear work packages and research questions that we're trying to answer. But we try and maintain a bit of flexibility within that so that if government or stakeholders suddenly say, I've got this brilliant technology or I've got this really burning policy question that we've got a bit of capacity to be able to respond quickly to that kind of thing. But we are doing research for the longer term normally. It's not something where we're doing something uh, quick and dirty for six months where we're normally looking at three to five year projects. And those projects are normally looking at 2040, 2050 time horizons for the energy sector. Just taking it back to when you said you were a girl studying A-level physics and wondering what you were going to do at that point. We know that a lot of the science and connected engineering sectors and others are quite underrepresented by women working in them. In what way was your school, your family, your peer group supportive of you and did they make it comfortable or less so to pursue a science and a physics study and approach? Yeah, for me, it wasn't GCSEs. It was O-levels at that point. So when I was choosing O-level, I really wanted to be a computer programmer. So I decided that that was the career direction that I wanted to do. And I could have chosen three sciences, but at GCSE, I chose computer science and physics. And we had a ZX Spectrum at home. This is how old I am. So we had a ZX Spectrum and I was teaching myself basic on the computer. And by the time I got to doing computing science at school, it turned out I knew more than the teacher. It was a brand new topic area. And because I'd already taught myself basic, I didn't feel like it was kind of stretching or that I was learning anything. And so I kind of went off the topic of uh, being a computer programmer and took the physics science forward. I had a range of physics teachers during the time that I was at school, including male and female teachers. So I had some female role models when I was studying. The physics teacher I had at A-level was very enthusiastic about physics, was able to explain concepts and make them relevant to the everyday, which I think helped. And my family were just generally supportive of me doing well at school and having academic qualifications. They weren't necessarily massively bothered about what that led to, um, so long as I was happy, which is a nice situation to be in. And I was the first in my family to go to university. My mum and dad had not got to that level in their own um, careers, but my dad worked as sales engineer. And so the engineering side of things and the sciences were definitely of interest to him. And my mum was a bookkeeper, so the math side of things 
she was good at. So maybe I got that interest from both of them. But I ended up in terms of A-levels and then university, getting to university. So the physics class, there had been other girls in my A-level physics class. But by the time I got to university, you know, I did physics at Leicester University. Then there were three women in my class of 60. And so, because energy is very similar ever since, it's been a case of, you know, being the minority in the room. But that has some advantages in that people tend to remember your name because there aren't many women studying or working in this area. And I've always found my family to be very supportive of that. And so is my current employer. So I work at Newcastle University. They're very clear on issues around equality, diversity and inclusion. And they've been very supportive of my career progression. So I've become a professor whilst I've been at Newcastle. And there is still an issue with certainly school age students putting themselves in one box or another, saying, I'm not a maths person, I'm not science Is there work going under your university or in your area of study to actively engage both school-age university students and even those wanting to change career to get involved in the science of energy and energy efficiency? Yeah, so first of all, energy needs people from all discipline areas. I'm regularly working with people from all sorts of different areas. So I've worked with an anthropologist in Durham who's really interested in the human societal development, but we've applied that to energy, for example. I've worked with a marketing team this morning and they've been really fascinated about the energy work that we're doing and helping on the branding for that. So don't feel that if you've gone into a certain subject area that energy is closed off to you. We, it's a difficult problem to solve, so we need everybody. But in terms of the sciences in particular and pigeonholing, then the thing I find quite strange is that working in the sciences and engineering, you have to be good at problem solving. And to be a good problem solver, you have to be creative. So quite often people say, oh, I'm not a creative person, I'm a science person. But actually, you have to be really creative to come up with really good solutions for problems, even if those solutions are technical. You're quite often designing or considering system design, technology design, in the energy sector, we then have to think about how is that technology going to be used? So we have to understand human behavior. We have to talk to behaviorologists and sociologists and try and understand why do members of society do the things that they do? Why do people buy certain things? Why do people do certain things in the home or at work? Because potentially our technology is rubbish if we haven't thought about the end user. And so it does lend itself energy to being quite a multidisciplinary topic area. But I would say if you're at school and you're thinking about your career development, then don't consider that the sciences are for people who are not creative. It would be really great to see more people doing sciences and art and getting into design with a very artistic background or seeing people who are, are very interested in economics and the sciences to come and work in the energy space and help us understand what are the right business models and how do we ensure that these things economically stack up and have the right business models and business studies and 
all these other areas are still very helpful to us getting to net zero. One thing that strikes me from what you say there is that although there may be a, an outside perception of scientists as perhaps aloof or working alone in the labs, but you're describing a huge amount of collaboration with other people. I wonder how have you over time consciously developed your own skills in collaborating, working with teams, networking? Have you thought much about how you develop that skills as well as your scientific press? Yes, and I think it comes down to being able to listen. And part of that is listening actively. So not thinking about interrupting or providing your own thoughts on something that someone has just said, but simply listening to what they're saying and then repeating it back to them in a slightly different phrase or way to represent your understanding of what they've said. And so collaboration for me is very much around listening because these different subject areas have huge benefit to solving the energy crisis. It's not all about fixing it with science. And so I need to understand and listen to those other perspectives in order to improve the solutions that I'm trying to put forward. And that active listening is really an important part of that collaboration. So if we take it back to, you said that you went to university and then moved into your first role and you've worked across both the business sector and the academic sector. How did your journey plan out? How much of it was by chance and how much of it was planned ahead by you? Yeah, so I would say that my first research job was at a university called De Montfort University and I had an 18-month contract. And when you start out on a research journey, you tend to get quite a lot of short-term contracts because that's the way that the research is funded. You're funded for a certain period of time. And when you're at an early stage career doing the research, then your research contract is tied to the money. So I had quite a few different contracts at that one university that were very much tied to whatever the money was about. So it wasn't as well directed for me. I started off working on research around wind energy technologies. And part of that was around training for people coming into wind energy as a sector. And part of that was around business contracts. So I was looking at different contractual arrangements that were possible. And those two projects finished and I moved on to a project on energy efficiency which worked out great because it was a brand new area and the thing that I really love and I've worked out what it is that I like about my work and it is learning. I like learning new stuff. So it was great that it was a slightly different topic area in the overall umbrella of energy to do something on energy efficiency instead of on renewables. But I, I didn't set that direction myself. This was coming to an end of a contract and, and looking around for a new project to work on. But during that second contract period, I was able to start writing my own research proposals. And that enabled me to start setting the future journey for me. And then as part of that time spent in academia, I got really a bit bored with the 
bureaucracy of working at a university. They're quite large organisations and they're very slow to change. They're very conservative. So I decided that I wanted to step out into industry and see what that was like. And I went and worked for an energy consultancy. After spending a couple of years there, I switched to a power engineering consultancy running their research department. And being out in industry gave me a different skill set. It's very fast paced. You're very customer oriented. I think that's where some of the listening skills came in because you have to think quite carefully about what it is the customer wants. And sometimes they're not very good at articulating that. So you've got to read between the lines a bit. But also in that second company, running the research department made me realize that it was the learning that I really enjoyed doing and doing the research. And that led me to a job back in academia. So I stepped back into academia and started doing some research, was a bit more about buildings and how buildings perform. And that's where my first love still lies, I think. I really like doing research around energy efficiency and renewable energy at the building scale and thinking about how we could make buildings much greener than they currently are. So I still consider that as part of this work that I'm doing around whole energy systems and how everything fits together because one of the jigsaw pieces is the buildings that we live and work in. And during this career, which has been one sense, it's followed a path, but it's had a lot of variety within that path. You've published well over 40 different research papers, spoken at 20 plus different conferences at different times, written book chapters. The publishing, is that a side that you really enjoy or is it a side that's partly more of a necessity for the academia? Oh, I would say it's both. In order for your career to progress as an academic, you need to demonstrate the research in a way that's communicated to other academics. And that's normally through journals and through conference papers and book chapters, like you said. But also it's quite nice to be able to distill down your own learning and try and put it across in a way that if another academic took that paper and tried to do the same thing, that they had enough information from the paper to be able to replicate what it was you did so that they could then take the next step and progress it on from where you got to. So I do really feel that, yes, it's a necessary part for an academic career, but it's also enjoyable in order to try and really communicate. But it's not the only communication method. And so I also quite like talking to community groups and more public facing events because it also enables you to try and explain what it is that you do in a more non-academic language. And when you have to try and use simpler terms in order to get across quite complex ideas, then it really tests your own understanding of what it is that you do. Uh, there's nothing like having to teach someone else as motivation for making sure that you understand something. So I was looking at Green Jobs Barometer that's published online by PwC, and your region alone, the Northeast, has seen a 118% increase in green jobs being advertised since 2021. And you yourself have been involved in training future energy industry professionals. So what is your awareness or involvement of the scale of need we have as a country for green jobs and green skills? 
Yeah, so we know across the UK that there aren't enough people working in the green sector at the moment. We, we have a, a skills shortage. So in terms of what kind of skills they are, then it does, like I say, across different discipline areas. But in the Northeast in particular, because we're right next to the North Sea, we're seeing quite a lot of jobs in the offshore sector, particularly offshore wind. Energy efficiency, because it involves sticking insulation into lots of houses, does tend to involve a lot of numbers of people across the country because you tend to pick local tradespeople to work in your home. And so energy efficiency really needs lots of jobs, particularly if the government decides to invest more in improving the stock of building that we've got. And then other areas that we've seen some growth in is around biomass energy. So not just the growing of the biomass, but then the processing of it in order for it to be a fuel that could then be used for energy. And so, for example, down the road from me in Cramlington, there's a combined heat and power unit. So it's creating heat and it's creating electricity. And the input to that is biomass. So it's using fuel that's being generated from plants that we've grown and then that enables us to generate heat and electricity for the local community. So lots of different opportunities. A lot of that is in the private sector, but there's also quite a lot of interest in the public sector. So the NHS is worried about how to get to net zero, local councils scratching their heads about how to get to net zero, and other kind of public sector agencies and bodies and charities so there's a lot of interest in this space and not enough people to go around with the right skills, particularly so local colleges and universities are looking at things like green skills in construction, green skills in the transport sector, transport for the rail, for heavy goods vehicles, for even for personal cars. How are we training the next generation of mechanics so that they can service electric vehicles and not just petrol and diesel vehicles, for example? So lots going on that we need to fix in order to get to where we need to be. And so clearly, the stronger your green skills, whatever sector you want to go and work in or are working in, the more opportunity there is going to be for you because there's just increasing demand for these skills and not enough people with them. Yes, definitely. So for example, if we're going to get to net zero, need to have some major investment in our electricity infrastructure. We need lots of electrical engineers. We're not making enough electrical engineers in the country and they're not all staying in the UK and working in electrical engineering once they graduate. So we have a real need for electrical engineers, the same for mechanical and civil and chemical engineers. And so just in engineering, we know that we're not getting enough graduates out and into the economy, but that's the same for all sorts of areas. So green finance, for example, you know, we're training up people who are going into finance and banking and there are new ethical funds and green banking initiatives. And that green finance specialism is an area of growth as well with the demand for skills and experience. And in your expert opinion, I'm putting you on the fence for here, are we going to achieve our 2050 targets in the UK? I always try and stay positive about this. It is quite a difficult challenge. 
it's a challenge that we need to achieve because obviously, as we've seen in the recent news around high temperatures in mainland Europe, around flash flooding, around strange storm events that are happening around the world, we need to do our fair share as a developed country in the UK. By doing our fair share, we can ensure that we still have a comfortable standard of living that is affordable. And by comfortable, I mean, you know, if we were improving our building stock, we could afford to heat our houses in a much more green way because we wouldn't need as much energy to heat them because they'd be very energy efficient, for example. And that maintains comfort, keeps standard of living, but gets us to our green target. At the moment, we're not making the change needed at the pace that is needed. We're behind schedule. So we need to ramp up the change. And at the moment, we know what most of the technologies are that we need to do, but we haven't worked out how we're going to pay for it all. We haven't worked out how we're going to get all of the skills that we need. And we haven't worked out whether there are any unintended consequences or unexpected clashes in terms of trade-offs between investing in certain areas like transportation and maybe doing that first and doing the building stock later. We haven't worked out some of the detail around when to do stuff in order to get the biggest return in that journey to 2050. So we're at risk of missing it, I think is what my overall answer is. (laughs) And without wishing to oversimplify what is a hugely complex and mixed picture, could I interpret from that that money is actually a bigger obstacle than the science of how to do it? Some of the obstacle is hard decisions around money. We know from economic analysis that in the long term, it is better for the economy if we make these changes now. But to make the changes now, we have to pay for them up front. So we'll make savings in the long term, but it'll cost us more in the short term. If we don't do it, it'll cost us more overall in the long term. So by doing nothing, we are putting the burden of cost onto the next generation. And so that is the difficulty, not necessarily that it's going to be more costly overall, it won't. It's just that it's costly now rather than later. And that is what makes it a difficult decision for government when they want to get re-elected and only have a four-year cycle before the next re-election. And so they're always thinking about how can we get returns that are either within the four years or how can we minimise the cost and put it onto the next government? And with everything you have seen during your career so far and, and what you believe is coming up as well, if you could go back to your 16-year-old self who was choosing which A-level to take, what advice would you give to yourself about how to pursue your career? Or what motivation would you say, if you do this, this will happen? So I did maths, physics and industrial studies at A-level and I got three C's and I still got to university and I still got to be a professor. So I'd say to people listening, don't think it's the end of the world if you don't get A's and B's at A-level. I think if I could go back and give some advice to that person, I would say try lots of things to find out what it is you love. 
because it makes going to work every day so much nicer when you're looking forward to it than if you're dreading it. And for me, finding that purpose around the research by stepping away from it wasn't a failure. It was a learning exercise to help me realize what it was that I love in the job that I do. So I love learning. And so doing research is fantastic. But I also have realized that I really want to make a difference in this transition to net zero. So it's not just research for researchers sake I'm trying to do applied research I'm trying to do research that informs policy I'm trying to do research that helps answer some of these difficult questions and if I'd discovered that sooner then maybe I don't know if I would have ever stepped away from industry but yeah I've really enjoyed trying different things and enabling that trial to be a learning exercise to find what I love just because you try something out and you don't stick at it isn't a failure. It means that that isn't the right thing for you to do. And you've worked that out now. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And in all of the projects and all of the studies and all of the work and research that you've done over your career today, what perhaps makes you most either pleased or most proud to see that it has actually been part of something that has carried through to affect our lives as citizens? as consumers. So what have you seen move from your research to reality that's made a positive impact? So quite often, I think that is the individuals that I've worked with. So as a researcher at university, working with other researchers that then go out and do other things, then we've been working with a colleague called Laura Brown, who was a centre manager for one of the centres that we were working on. And Laura has gone off to work at Northern Power Grid now. And that work that we were doing around flexibility and ways in which assets could be controlled differently to provide support to the electricity network, she now runs their flexibility scheme, for example. So some of that is definitely moving with the person in terms of that knowledge being put into practice. And then another aspect that's been really nice to see is we spent a bit of time working with a colleague called Keith Owen at Northern Gas Networks and talking about how do we envisage what would be the business plan for gas networks moving forward because we're not going to be using natural gas by 2050. So what are they going to be doing? And so we've been working with Northern Gas Networks to think about this. And as part of that, we helped Keith write a proposal for funding for a set of five demonstrator houses on a site that Northern Gas Networks own. And those houses are now built and industry can now go and try out different technologies in these homes to see how their technologies fare, how they perform in a demonstrator location instead of in a lab because a lab can only do so much in terms of demonstrating the potential for different technologies so that's been really nice to see that get built for example fantastic and to finish off one of the things we like to do is to pass on the baton of careers experience to find other people who's journeys will be really useful to other people thinking about their careers. So is there 
anybody who you could think of who we should get on, who we should unwrap their career of and see how their stories can help others? So I think I would suggest a lady called Helen Stockton. She works for National Energy Action, which is a charity that is working to alleviate fuel poverty. And I think her career journey for the charity would be quite interesting for listeners to hear a kind of charity viewpoint of the energy sector and how they work to try and influence government policy and change the lives of those who are struggling with fuel bills. Great, Helen Stockton. Thank you. Sarah, this has been fascinating. I think a conversation that felt at the beginning it was going to be very much about science and academia has been about creativity. It's been about collaboration. It's been about problem solving. It's been about variety. And I think that's one of the most interesting things and maybe even a misconception outside that taking a route, not only as you're doing to try and play a part in solving some really, really big, important issues, is also one packed full of variety and interest along the way. So thank you so much for coming on, for allowing us to unwrap your career. It's been fantastic having you. Yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about myself. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organisation to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.